the parable of the great banquet, which is chapter 14, as I've said, 15 to 23. Now, this is just set where Jesus has been invited to eat at the home of a respected Pharisee and is sharing a meal with other guests, mainly the teachers of the law, who are trying to catch him out in the discussions they are having. And so let's read the parable of the great banquet. And it says this. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And now I invite Johnny to come and share the Lord's word with us. John. Thank you. Kevin. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Do um, keep those Bibles open. Oh. Um, it's lovely to be with you this morning. Um, it's such a wonderful thing. I've thought in my uh, couple of years here in Staines, this partnership that we have between our churches is the most wonderful thing, whether it's uh, evangelism or youth work, the weekend away uh, we do, the sports reach in the summer, so many wonderful ways that we can be united as churches in our, in our desire to see people become disciples of Christ. It is a wonderful and beautiful thing. If you don't know me, my name's Johnny. I'm married to Hannah. Um, uh, I'm the father of four children. My oldest is six, good friends with Eli. Uh, my youngest is one. Um, and then uh, uh, Toby and Eliza in between. Let's turn to God's word. And let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to see in it this morning your glory, the wonder of your gospel, and encouragement as to how we might reach people that they may have life. Amen. Well, as Kevin said, we're in this series on generations. If you've been here, you've had a silent gen, gen X, gen Z. This week, it's the turn of the millennials. I'm a millennial. So are you if you were born between about 1981 and 1996. So that's about ages 27 to 43 years old. Millennials often get the stick, don't they? The me generation, they're sometimes called. Lazy, entitled, bad to work with, 
I don't think those things are actually true, but it's what sometimes people say. What can we say of this generation? All the preachers in this series have been, uh, or I think most of them have been reading this book by uh, Jean Twenge uh, called Generations. It's really fascinating as she uh, observes the trends in Western Christianity and particularly the influence of technology on life and how that makes each generation different. Of course, millennials are the ones who came of age with the internet, with dial-up tones and waiting there to log on to MSN Messenger. Uh, they're the ones who mastered the art of texting on a flip phone. Anyone remember how you texted hi? You had to press four, four, three times, and then pause, and then four times just to say hi. But millennials were really good at it. They were the digital natives ready to grow up and start up digital startups that would change this country. Apart from social media, they weren't social media natives, they were saved that challenge until later. But the thread of the, uh, the uh, millennial generation that I particularly want to pick up is this kind of me generation idea. Individualism. The focus on the self. It's been there in other generations, as I'm sure you've seen. But now technology kind of allowed it to flourish in a way that it hadn't before. That it perhaps became the central belief of the millennial generation. Individualism, like it never had before. More planned and carefully nurtured than any other generation before, their childhoods were full of optimism. The computer revolution, the end of the Cold War, the economy was doing well. And optimism inside as well, the message they heard growing up. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, just believe in yourself. High self-esteem, that was the key to success. Or in the words of the millennial show Glee, it's not just about expressing yourself to anyone else. It's about expressing yourself to yourself. So it was that pop songs began replacing us and we with I and me. And at sports days, prizes started getting given out for effort and taking part. And the thing is, is that all that kind of... Uh, the parenting that was going on, the, the, what society was telling children, it worked. This self-esteem building. I think perhaps my favorite statistic that I read in Twingy's book. It's from America, but I'm sure it'd be true here as well. As millennials became adults, 70% of them thought they'd be in the top 20% of jobs. That they were kind of the 20% most gifted, as it were. Which is impossible, obviously. And so Twenge concludes, I quote, in short, millennials are the most optimistic and self-confident generation in history. However, not everything turned out as they had hoped. Now, of course, we're not actually here to talk just about sociology. We're really here to hear from God's word that speaks to us all, whatever generation we might be. 
our parable today is quite a well-known one if you've been coming to church for a while. Jesus is at a meal with the Pharisees, you know, the religious elite, the ones who think they've got it all together in life. And Jesus is being quite the awkward dinner guest. He's already made comments about the seating arrangement and comments about the guest list. And so one of them pipes up, one of the Pharisees in verse 15, and he says this, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. I don't know whether he was just trying to change the subject or win some brownie points, but either way, it didn't work because Jesus responds with another awkward story. A man, a banquet, lots of invitations and poor excuses. And so the man fills his banquet anyway, anyway with the unexpected. But what I'd like to do this morning is to ask the question, where would you place the millennial in this story? Now, perhaps the obvious place is in verse 18. But they all began to make excuses. This is the invited guests with the excuses they come up with. Is that millennials? Well, I think in a way it probably is. You know, ample opportunity to hear about and follow Jesus. And yet, on a whole, as a generation, they stopped going to church. In 2009, the Evangelical Alliance in the UK published a report coining the phrase, the missing generation. Perhaps you've heard that phrase. Pointing out how 18 to 30-year-olds, in other words, millennials at the time, they weren't going to church as much as older generations had. Why? Well, Twenge gives an answer in her book. She says this. In short, because it, religion is not compatible with individualism. And individualism is millennials' core value above all else. Individualism promotes focusing on the self and finding your own way, and religion, by definition, promotes focusing on things larger than the self and following certain rules. One millennial said of her beliefs, whatever you feel, it's personal. Everybody has their own idea of God and what God is. You have your own personal beliefs of what's acceptable for you and what's right for you personally. Now, I'm sure there are lots of other reasons as well, but this certainly rings true, doesn't it? And that's what's going on in our passage as well. Each guest focusing on themselves first. Verse 18, Jesus continued. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. I, I, I didn't know oxen needed trying out, but you know, apparently. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married so I can't come. I would have texted back at this point, bring your wife, we'd love to meet her. Anyway, I wonder what the excuses might be today. The first said, oh, the kids have swimming on Sundays. Please excuse me. Another said, 
I've just got a new job and I'm, I'm just trying to get my work-life balance right. And, you know, Sunday mornings, they're really important for, for me time. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got a girlfriend and we're seeing how things go and, and maybe then we'll move in together. And once we've done the kitchen extension, well, well then maybe then it'll be a good time to think about church things. You know, it's not always hostility that's the problem, but apathy. The 19th century bishop, J.C. Ryle, puts it like this. He said, infidelity and immorality, in other words, caring about sin more than God, no doubt slay their thousands. But decent, plausible, smooth-spoken excuses slay their tens of thousands. And so certainly there are many millennials, in fact any generation, who needs to hear this message and be told that perhaps they too are distracted with misinformed priorities and that if they keep on, they're just going to pass by the great banquet, none the wiser. There are many who need to reflect on whether they too are making excuses Perhaps even some here this morning. And yet that's not actually where I want to leave the millennial this morning. Because Jesus, remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. He's critiquing the Pharisees who've got it all together. But I don't actually think millennials are the we've got it all together generation that actually, despite all their optimism and self-belief, conversely, in a way, millennials often feel broken. One of the trends that Twenge tracks in her book is about mental health. You know, we hear quite a lot about Gen Z mental health, but it's also millennials. They were actually happier than previous generations as teenagers, you know, with all that self-belief and optimism. But then, as they reached adulthood, there was a clear upward trend of depression, dissatisfaction, deaths of despair, as she calls it, and so on. Her stats are all American, but it's the same in the UK. According to Deloitte, who do global research in this every year, in just 2023, last year, 47% of millennials would say they feel stressed all or most of the time. And why? Well, I'm sure there's lots of reasons, but for Twenge, it's individualism again. And I think she's onto something. That the me focus isn't actually always that great for us. You know, without the community of religion or the support and connection of marriage as people delay it or put it off completely. Or as trips to the pub at the weekend with friends or to the cinema have been replaced by scrolling alone at home or Netflix alone. Well, it's no wonder, really. And in a way, millennials, on a whole, are a broken generation. So for the rest of our time this morning, what I'd like to do is to tell this parable again, but from a different point of view from the point of view of one of the broken, 
One of those outcasts that we see at the end. The poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Just not physically, but for us emotionally, spiritually broken. So first, we see an invite for the broken. It reminds me a bit of the story of the paralyzed man, remember that in the Gospels, who gets lowered through the roof because there's not enough room because of the crowds. And Jesus forgives his sins and heals him. Remember him. And imagine him beforehand, on the side of the road, perhaps, begging, perhaps, to make a living. You can kind of imagine people like me, seeing him from afar, finding a reason to cross the road so that you don't have to look him in the eyes. But then, an invite. In that case, he's got friends who come and tell him, come, there's hope, come. And they carry him, and he comes. Nervous, sure, perhaps, fearful, but hopeful. No excuses for him. He's broken. He, he needs help. And so he comes. Oh, the wonderful invitation of Jesus. Come, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. An invitation to all. That little detail in verse 16. Many people, many guests had been invited. You know, if someone doesn't come, it's not God's fault. The invitation is there. Will they come? And what do they find when they come? What do we find when we come? Well, then second, life for the broken. For the paralyzed man on the mat, that meant working legs and forgiveness of sins. Hope and life to the full. In the words of this parable, a great banquet. Now it's interesting here, the man in verse 15, when he said a great banquet, he was almost certainly looking forward to heaven, wasn't he? But I wonder what, what Jesus is talking about. Certainly in those words, great banquet, we, we hear heaven. We look forward and we expect, that, you know, that's there, isn't it? But at the same time, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And it's not just the future he's talking about. At the beginning, Lee mentioned Isaiah 55. It's the same there, the invitation, come. All you who are thirsty, come and drink. And you who have no money, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It's not actually talking about wine and milk. <laughs> it's talking about spiritual life. The whole buffet of forgiveness, justification, adoption, growth in holiness, life, set free to be lived as it ought to be lived. Spiritual healing for the broken. I heard recently a, um, a testimony from a, a millennial Muslim lady talking about how she had come to faith. And it was talking about um, you know, how just her life was falling apart. And she got desperate. And one day she turned up to a church. It had red doors. She went in and uh, 
a man met her with a, a huge smile on his face and welcomed her in and found someone for her to sit next to. And she kind of just let out her whole story. But she found life, real life. Perhaps you've got similar stories to share. I've been wondering quite a lot over the last few weeks about the kind of now and the, the then aspect of this parable. It's kind of one of those things about doing the same sermon on subsequent Sundays. You really have time to think about it. Because we could certainly frame this parable as about heaven, and that would be right and good, and people need to hear that. But what I've been wondering, is there something that particularly millennials need to hear in the, the now message of this parable? I was reading an American called uh, Josh Chen talking about this, who works with millennials quite a lot. And for what it's worth, his theory is that the anxiety of millennials actually makes them more kind of now-focused people. That there's something in the kind of fight or flight that means you're not going to be kind of long-term planning and thinking ahead like perhaps people before did. But it, it's life now, mental health now, work-life balance now. What I know for certain is that as Christians, we're really good at talking about what Jesus has done in the past. And we're really good at you know, dying on the cross for us. And we're really good at talking about what we're looking forward to in the, hev- in the future, in heaven. But it's much harder, isn't it? What, what does Jesus do for us now, today? And I wonder, perhaps, if we need a bit more of that banquet now as we share Jesus Christ. I listen to a lot of premier praise in the car. Um, more music, less talking. That's particularly what I like about it. Um, I reckon it's you know, targeted at millennials, but I'm sure many others listen to it. Here's a typical song that I heard on it. It's called Truth Be Told, written by a millennial. And I think illustrates a millennial who knows what he feels and what he thinks he needs. Lie number one, you're supposed to have it all together. And when they ask how you're doing, just smile and tell them never better. Lie number two, everybody's life is perfect except yours. So keep your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe with you behind closed doors. He feels broken. But then, verse two, what he needs, but he's not getting it. There's a sign on the door says, come as you are, but I doubt it. Because if we lived like it was true, every Sunday morning pew would be crowded. But didn't you say church should look more like a hospital? A safe place for the sick, the sinner and the scarred and the prodigals, like me. Now maybe this is just one person. But he's one person who feels broken. And what he longs for is, is a hospital at church. A place of honesty and vulnerability where people are just real with one another and and sharing their need for Jesus and how Jesus helps them. I've wondered about this, particularly at our church. We have quite a lot of millennial families who um, come along for a wide range of reasons, perhaps to get into the school for a number of them. And I often meet up with them. And I'll ask them um, uh, how they found church. And they don't really kind of know how to 
you know, the, the lingo to answer that question with. You know, lots of people haven't grown up in church. Um, but the thing that I realized recently that they almost always say is that the teaching is really relevant to life, which I find fascinating, that that's the kind of thing they pick up on, that actually the Bible is the difference it makes now that they're kind of hearing. So I just wonder if that's part of what we need to be speaking about. Of course, that's not all that matters to millennials. And so as well as an invite for the broken and life for the broken that we see in this parable, as they come into this banquet, they look around and there are others like them, the the spiritually poor, crippled, blind and lame. And they realize it's not just me. There's hope for it all for the world. As actually this great banquet turns everything upside down. You know, the uh, self-optimism and belief of millennials, I think they should be called the can-do generation. That although perhaps they're struggling personally, they still think they can make a difference. And so get involved with things. They recycle and care for the environment, and they care about equality and race relations. And so how wonderful is it that in this parable, even, we have a solution that lasts, That actually in gathering people into this banquet, into his church, Jesus is creating the mechanism, the means for remaking a broken world. That he is righting all the wrongs and that one day he will make all things good again. So there we have it, as it were, the parable for the millennials, an invite for the broken, life for the broken. But then thirdly as well, a solution to all brokenness. And yet, obviously, it is also a parable for us all. And so I want to end this morning by asking, how is it speaking to you particularly this morning? I mean, it might be that you haven't yet accepted this invitation of God's. That you're making excuses, procrastinating perhaps, or just a little too apathetic. Don't walk on by. I'm sure these people in the parable, they thought they could come back later, but they lost their chance. Verse 24 at the end, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. You are invited. Will you come? There's a children's song that we sometimes listen to in the car. The chorus goes like this. It's a gracious invitation to the Saviour's celebration. Love and joy awaiting. Will you come? He says come. Will you come? But perhaps you have come. And you want to bring others. And you hear the command of verse 23. The master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And you hear that command and you think, yes, and that's to us. We're his servants. We're the ones who need to come and compel people in. But how? They're not just going to turn up, well, not normally at least. 
Well, one encouragement and one challenge. The challenge first, can we perhaps give it a go, sharing the now of our faith? Share the difference he makes now. Sharing with a colleague at work who's stressed, what do we do when we're stressed? For me, it'd be going for a walk by the river and reading some of the Bible and praying. And how could I kind of talk about what verses I found helpful or how that helps? Or the parents at school gates anxious about entrance exams. How does knowing Jesus help? Or when someone's telling you how they're struggling with patience. For me, patience with the kids, often on a Saturday. How Jesus can change our perspectives and give us patience and help us to restart and stay sorry and, and move on. And of course, all done in the context of relationship and knowing people and sharing our lives with people. And being the ones who are revolutionarily hospita- hospitable. You know, finding ways that we can actually be countercultural in our kindness. So that people can see that the gospel does make life better. But the gospel does make the world better. And all the while remembering, and this is the encouragement, those words at the end of verse 23, my house will be full. Because it's not actually our work, is it? Oh, the glory of God that he longs to shed his compassion and saving grace on our country. That he is determined, whatever excuses people have, that he will save millennials and bring them into his kingdom. What a gospel we have to share that is not shared in our power or our skill, but the power and skill of the Holy Spirit who can bring fullness to the poor and life to the spiritually crippled and lame and sight to those who are blind with salvation. My house will be full. So let's share him with confidence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your gospel, that as well as giving us a great future to look forward to, can help us live lives to the full. Lives of enjoying our relationship with you, of knowing your closeness when things are really hard and painful. Lord, how might we share that with others and draw others into your kingdom? Help us, Lord, we pray, and help us to be encouraged that it is your work as we go forward. Amen.